The Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning. You're listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins, and today we have a very special guest, Maxine Beniba Clark. And good morning, Maxine. Good morning. Um, so uh, you've been in the news quite a lot recently with your very successful book, Foreign Soil, mm-hmm. which was shortlisted for a Stella Prize. Yeah, um, it's a book of short stories um, that I wrote probably over the course of four or five years um, that was published last year. And um, yeah, I was really delighted that it was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. Yes, it's been uh, it's been quite a successful book. It's sort of out there everywhere and lots of people have read it. And, and you had an interesting situation where you were in a dinner with the Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Mm-hmm. Um, would you would you like to share that moment? <laughs> yeah, I'm at the Australian Book Industry Awards last year. Um, I was invited by my publishers. It's kind of an annual awards um, dinner where um, Australian authors are, are recognised for their books, um, and at the time, I think it was when the funding cuts to the arts had just been announced. And I was kind of having talks with various people I knew that work for Overland and Mianjin and talking about, look, how are we going to make some kind of protest? And I knew that Tony Abbott was going to be at this dinner and I thought, you know, this is a dinner supporting Australian authors. What better place to hand deliver this petition? So I popped it in an envelope with a copy of Foreign Soil, which had just come out and managed to get close enough to him to kind of say... Here, I've, I've got bought a copy of my book that I want you to read. Um, he was very reluctant to take it because obviously quite surprised that I got that close to him. And then when he'd taken it, I kind of said, actually, there's also a petition in there that I'd like you to read. Um, and, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, he hasn't responded at all in any way, um, which I'm quite surprised about. Um, but, you know, here we are, I guess, over a year later with the actual um, funding cuts having been outlined and announced and, you know, many more artists and writers protesting. Yeah. And um, so the petition was signed by... Um, yeah, it was signed by probably about 80 or 90 um writers and artists across Australia at that time, uh, people like Christo Tiolkaz, Don Watson, Michelle de Kretzer, really some high-profile names. And it was just, I guess, to outline what that kind of funding cut does to the arts at a grassroots level. Um, and I guess presenting it at the awards was kind of a, a, a almost an ironic um, thing to do because, you know, here is this, this man giving a speech about how much he's supporting the arts on the one hand and then at the other end cutting funding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now you, are in your writing, and we're going to focus on your poetry writing in today's program, um, you are often responding um, to the real world around you. You're not, you don't often write sort of abstract poetry that people would need some kind of translation device to understand you actually are often writing about real things in the real world, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. A lot of my inspirations are things that are happening in the world around us. I think for me, poetry is my real way of digesting the world and engaging with 
um, the world on a political level. Um, for a lot of people, it's it's not, you know, it's a very personal thing. And for me, it's personal as well, but I think more so it's just my way of, of engaging with what's going on around me. And uh, I think you've got a poem there that I'd be really interested in hearing about the Charleston Massacre. Uh, yeah, this is a, a piece that I wrote recently um, after the uh, massacre in, in Charleston in the States, just kind of looking at, I guess, um, violence in and around black churches in the US. Um, it's called Can I Get a Witness? In Birmingham, Alabama, hate blew up little brown church girls in taffeta and acapella, not yet halfway through their lives, not yet halfway down the communion stairs and already halfway to heaven. Can I get a witness? There is gunpowder in the house of Adam. At the Emmanuel Episcopal Church, there stands a pockmarked pulpit, cabernet stains on window glass. Hate disguised himself and smiled in fellowship, and the good Christian people, they welcomed him with open arms. Can I get a witness? There is gunpowder in the house of God. Nothing suspicious to report in Ferguson, Missouri. They are saying electrical faults in Knoxville, Tennessee. They are saying no sign of arson in Charlotte, North Carolina. They are saying cause undetermined in Florida, Tallahassee. Can I get a witness? The black churches, they are burning. They are saying, no cause for alarm, but there is fire. Can I get a witness? There is fire in the house of God. Beautiful work. Um, it's the voice of Maxine Beniba-Clark. Um, so tell me, how did you uh, begin writing, you know, when you were younger and um did you find an audience straight away or was it just something you did for yourself? I think definitely something I did for myself in my late teen years and, um, you know, as, as a young adult. I did study creative writing at university um, and so that was a more – I mean, I always see that really at university what I learned to do mostly was read, you know, how to read things and interpret things and, and find things that I would love and could later use as inspiration. And then after university I – did a little bit of short monologue work, things like Short and Sweet, uh, Short Play Festival in Sydney. And I found myself writing these almost talking heads, whether it be one character or at the most two or three characters, and then stumbled on spoken word. I saw an ad for the Glee Books, New South Wales Writers' Centre Poetry Sprint. I think this was 2006. And and it was a, it's a competition they have annually where you have 60 seconds to much like the the Doris Ledbetter Cup here in Melbourne. And I just went along to that and I thought, actually, I think these monologues that I've been writing are actually poems, you know. Um, and then moved to Melbourne a few months after that and discovered the Melbourne spoken word scene. Um, and I'd grown up in a household where, you know, my dad listened to Gil Scott Heron and, you know, some of those um, older black spoken word poets. At the time, I didn't know it was spoken word. It just sounded like rap. Um, and so I guess I'd always had that kind of background in me. Um, but it wasn't really until 2007 or eight that I realised that actually this is spoken word that I'm doing and this is what I want to be writing. And so when you came to Melbourne, where did you uh, find spoken word? What were the venues? 
I think the first thing I ever went to was the Doris Ledbetter Poetry Cup and it was the same kind of thing. I just saw an ad in a newspaper somewhere, not knowing that there was actually a scene of people that were, you know, gathering together on weekends and evenings and doing this thing. And so it was just like opening the door and stumbling into this den of poets, you know, all of whom knew each other, were making work with each other and had this long history of making spoken word work. Um, And I think in a weird way that was kind of the making of, you know, me as a spoken word poet was just discovering all of these other people who were doing the same thing and going, okay, this isn't such a strange area to be working in after all. Yeah, it, it, it has a, uh, a context. Mm. Yeah. Um, and your first uh, collection of um, poems was called Gil Scott Heron's On Parole. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, would you like to share something from that? Uh, yes, I will. Uh, so... Uh, The poem I'll read um, is really about um, when I first started getting into poetry. Um, There was an interview that I went to to get into this particular creative writing course that I wanted to get into. And this is kind of almost an account of, of that interview. It's called Jack. The short one stroked his silver beard, crossed sherry thin legs, smiled across the room at me and said, So, you want to write poetry? The other's smile curve was cut by the thick clay rim of his rust-coloured coffee cup. I was seventeen, and yeah, so what? I was there to see about being a poet. But all of a sudden, I was Jack, climbing stalk. All of a sudden, I was Jack, crouched on bare knees beneath the table, Jack in the giant's den, with all the fee-fi-foe and the fine hairs on their janola nostrils curling thumb. I was Jack, and the villain's wife was winking, cause damn, that woman, she knew exactly where I was. So, he said, we hear you want to write poetry. And what I wanted to say was, yeah, I've got my eye on your little old hen. But I was only 17, Jack off to market with the only friend I had, and her jersey brown eyes were saying, magic beans won't keep you worn. Come on, take me home, Jack. Fear breathing through flared wet nostrils. What kind of friend was I? I kept thinking about four continents, six generations of setting off for market and returning empty-handed. I was Jack, with one hand to pat the bovine's hide, and those wet red-rimmed eyes rolling toward me like, Oh, Jack, if you could only know how much I love you. I was Jack, straw hat in hand, a simple farmer's boy saying, One day I'll buy you back, my friend. I promise it, as cow heaved sighs and licked at the cracked leather boots around my trembling ankles. I was seventeen, and I was there to see about being a poet. But all of a sudden, I was Jack, saying, OK then, mister, hands warm around those beans. Was it all planned in advance or was I just born by chance in July? 
Must I be the only one who thinks these mysterious thoughts? Someday I'll die. Will I ever live again? As a mountain lion or a rooster or a hen, or a robin or a wren or a fly, oh. A track from Nina Simone, Who Am I? And on the Spoken Word program this morning, we're talking to Maxine Beniba-Clark about poetry. So um, after Gil Scott Heron's On Parole came out, did you find that uh, made a difference to your poetry, having a collection that you could share with others? I think so. Um, Part of the reason, I think for a long time when I first got into Spoken Word, probably about six years, I... Oh, no, not quite as long as that, probably more like about three and a half, four years. I did, wasn't putting anything on the page. Um, it was just kind of poetry that I almost wrote by memory. You know, I'd be walking along the street somewhere and I'd come up with these lines and I'd string them together. And so putting them down on the page really helped in terms of realising that it could, it was work that could actually stand up on the page. And quite a different thing when you're used to always being with your work. You know, you're always hand-delivering it to people when you're at the microphone. To actually put it on paper and put it in a book and on a shelf somewhere, it's kind of, you know, quite a daunting thing. And so it was a really big step, but also nice to go, okay, I've collected all of this work now. It's this tangible thing that I can share. So would you like to share another poem from that book? Uh, Yeah, I might uh, read the poem Marley, um, which was probably one of the earlier pieces that I wrote um, around, I think around 2007, 2008. Oh, Marley, nine months I carried you, scared out of my mind. Bringing a black child into this world wasn't smart on any footing. Like dumping Osama in Abu Ghraib and saying, Have fun, boys, nobody's looking. I felt sick. Every time I felt you kicking, trouble was brewing and that was no delusion. Truth was, I harbored a wanted fugitive, only a matter of tick, tock, tick, a matter of time before somebody knew. And then you're shot dead on the tube for wearing a backpack, seven holes, not one sniper stopping to think that maybe a mama was losing a child. 
Somebody's data wouldn't pay miles tonight. Who gave the directive to shoot on sight, as if seeing was believing and a blink wasn't worth a black man's life? Molly, you weren't unwanted. Everybody wanted you. The Taliban wanted to strap a bomb to your back. The cops wanted another black boy for target practice. Hoods wanted to smoke you on the street. The street wanted you to pedal crack on the corner. Rap wanted to bling you into being a gangster whore. Nobody said, but I knew by my boom shake the womb you would be a boy. Your data said, chill out. These are different times. You're behaving like it's 1965. But when I looked in his eyes, all I could see were whites. Nobody ever spat, called him a kaffir, wrote go home nigger in his maths book, said the job was taken when they saw him coming, butchered his ears and said the drum, drum, drumming of another world was nothing. You're not free cause you're born down under. Believe me, race is race cause it will beat you anywhere. Marley, nine months I carried you scared. The truth is that we walk death row before we learn to crawl. A brown boy standing proud at five is nothing short of a miracle. Beautiful. And um, so also that goes to the sense of memoir as well. Um, and uh, tell me a little bit about you, the, the book that you're currently writing, The Hate Race. Um, so The Hate Race is a book that will hopefully come out next year. Which is 2016. <laughs> yeah, 2016. Um, so I'm still working on it at the moment. And the idea behind it was, you know, having a lot of discussions with friends or, or, you know, even family members about race and what it means to be a person of colour in Australia. And, you know, people who haven't experienced racism saying, oh, come on, it's not, it can't be that bad. And just thinking, how, how can I tell people what a lifetime of because a lot of you know a lot of racism is about small small incidents you know people following you around a shop thinking you're going to steal something or you know these things that happen on a daily basis but um trying to explain what it feels like when these things accumulate and I thought what if I wrote a memoir that was you know not really dealing with my family not really dealing with dealing with um you know work life or relationships but actually looking at the type of incidents that I've experienced in my life. And some of them are quite amusing things, you know, people making particular assumptions about you being a really fast runner in the athletics team or something because you're black, you know, Um, and some of them are quite traumatic things. Um, So, yeah, it's just a book about growing up black in white middle-class Australia in the 80s and 90s and, and what that was like. It must have been quite hard because I think you grew up in an area of Sydney where there were no other black people. Yeah, yeah. I grew up um, in a place called Kellyville in Sydney, which is kind of on the um, west Sydney, but kind of the white picket fence Mm -hmm. west, um, the the Bible Belt as such. And so there was very little diversity, um, which, you know, I mean, at the time growing up, it didn't seem strange. That was just life. Mm -hmm. It's only really looking back on it as an adult with a much more diverse Australia and living in the West, you know, around Footscray that I kind of go, wow, that was quite an incredible (laughs) situation. But at the time, you know, you don't really, you're just getting on with it. 
Yeah. And so now you live um, not far from Footscray. What, what's your experience? Do you still feel that there's a lot of racism or is there a more inclusive culture where you are now? Well, I think by default it's more inclusive because there are simply more, there is more diversity. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there are more people to, I guess, not only absorb the impact of racism but to also stand with you. Um, I think, I, I feel like there was a brief um pre-Pauline Hanson hiatus in Australia, you know, in the mid-80s, where things really seemed to be getting easier. Right. We seemed to have really let go of the white Australia policy, and I think during the Howard years all of that got stripped back, you know, uh, moving right on to our current situation. Um, And so I always think there's hope, you know, and I think, you know, the problem with racism is that it only takes a few people you know, um, the, I think the majority of Australians are are good people, um, but it, it only takes one or two people to kind of become, you know, terrified or to feed off this xenophobia and, and for it to start to spread. Yes, and uh, we get people in power whipping up hatred as mm. a way of, you know, building vote banks. And it, it's very deliberate and very calculated and and uh and and a massive problem mm-hmm. and it goes to the whole attitude to refugees as well absolutely you know i mean all those people who are escaping from syria and iraq are escaping from isis and mm. uh and, mm. and the taliban they are not isis and the taliban and somehow our politicians manage to conflate them yeah absolutely it's it's a really scary thing to watch and yeah. to witness and to see it happen successfully in terms of of leveraging votes yes. um, of that kind of xenophobia. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, after um, Gil Scott Heron, you wrote a, another book called Nothing Here Needs Fixing. Mm-hmm. Would you like to tell me about that? Um, Nothing Here Needs Fixing, um, I guess, was is my second yeah, book. And um, it's a more – it's move, I felt like a lot of the poems in Gil Scott Heron were kind of anthemic you know, they they were personal, but they were really dealing with these large issues um, that were going on. Whereas I feel like nothing here needs fixing moved more toward memoir. You know, it's really talking about my own experiences and a different kind of poetry. And I wanted to do that with a second book um, to make sure that it kind of almost had a narrative to it in terms of the content. Okay, would you like to share a poem from Nothing Here Needs Fixing? Yeah, I'm going to read a poem called Open House um, and it's really about a time in my life when I was moving, I think I moved about three times in two years or something like that and about looking at all of these different houses that have kind of been lived in by different people. Uh, It's called Open House. Fingertips trail staggered height notches in wooden door frames, furtive biro scribbles at knee height, Weed-ravaged remnants of kitchen garden, faded Daffy Duck stickers on the spider-cracked porcelain. Empty houses are living albums, they tell it all. Poor prints in the bathtub, kid prints on the built-ins, push-bike tyre marks on the driveway, stray-chewed tennis ball under hills hoist, dirty sandpit in knee-high dandy lion yard. Empty living, leaving houses, albums all. Dog-eared child as Humpty still taped to Dumpty Blue bedroom wall. Hair, dust, skin, nails, used Colgate floss, wound filthy round the bathroom drain. 
Plastic piglet spoon lost between the counter and the oven. Sticky love note not sticky anymore, tucked inside a grimy kitchen drawer. Empty houses are living albums, they leave it all. Marvel comic card tucked behind a skirting board. Fat sultanas secreted behind a raised carpet corner. Meter-long cobwebs whisper. Empty houses are staggered fist marks. Furtive albums in plaster walls. Lost between the counter and the oven. Tucked behind the skirting board. Dog-eared, weed-ravaged, faded, staggered, spider-cracked. Dirty-chewed, empty houses. Faded fingerprints. Dust several millimeters thin. Well, you've certainly taken me there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's um it, it's an amazing sort of photo album, isn't it? The the house, the empty yeah, house, what yeah. people leave behind. Yeah, and it's really interesting, especially I think when you're going to open houses that may not have been you know cleaned properly or whatever. Yeah. You just see this evidence of of people who've just deserted the place for whatever reason um i've always found it fascinating to imagine who, who lived here before and what was their life like yeah yeah it's a little bit like ghosts sitting in the corners or something isn't it mm, yeah, yeah. Mm. um and uh so nothing here needs fixing um talks about a particular stage of your life when you made a big shift yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's really about becoming a single parent and that journey and the joys and the pitfalls and, you know, everything that comes with it. Um, and it's it's a very small book and I kind of wanted that. I thought – I felt like my first book was very – it was everything I had, you know, I had, I had been working on the, this spoken word stuff and I just wanted to put it all together. Whereas with this book, I really wanted to tell a story. And I think that, um, single parenthood, especially single motherhood is something that is, is a lot of the time written out of, of Australian literature or romanticized, um, in, in some way or another. And so I wanted a book that was kind of um, realistic but also showed these kind of moments of, of cohesion. Mm. Would you like to share another poem from that book? I might read the title poem, Nothing Here Needs Fixing. There is nothing here needs fixing. Black-eyed pea Monday nights, Jamaican barn, spiced rice pudding, mild mama love, jerk chicken and coconut rice. But on Friday nights, we wing it. In fish finger, tin spaghetti and oven chip style. Cause isn't tiredness a single mother's way of life? Love lives here, though things are tight. If these walls could talk, they'd stand and say, There have been dark nights and even darker days, But only tenderness was ever spoken. Love lives here. If these walls could talk, they'd stand and say, This home was never broken. Look around. I steer a second-hand, handmade, home-baked, and obedient ship. Children should be heard, not silence, but both kids must be in bed by six, and just somebody even think about giving me lip. Broken home? Nuh-uh. 
There is nothing here needs fixing. That's the voice of Maxine Veneva Clark, one of Melbourne's most exciting poets and writers. And um, uh, we're out of time. But thank you very much for coming in. Thanks, Di. And we're going to continue the conversation in a second show where we look at your influences. A quick word about the live poetry gigs in Melbourne. The Dan O'Connell Hotel in Carlton has poetry on every Saturday afternoon and Passionate Tongues is at the Brunswick Hotel every second Monday night. Westward happens out at the Dancing Dog Cafe in Footscray twice a month on Sunday afternoons. Voices in the Attic is run fortnightly on Tuesday evenings at 30 Dirk, Level 1 and 2, 239 Lonsdale Street. The House of Bricks, on or near the last day of every month, run by our very own Santo Katsati, that's me, corner of Bud and Keel Streets, Collingwood. Melbourne Poets Union is usually on the last Wednesday of the month at the Wheeler Centre. All of these gigs have open mics if you'd like to try your hand at sharing your work or you can just go to listen. Check out the website, melbournespokenword.com, to find out more about the scene.